cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra, extra special guest. Maria Vasalu has a fascinating history and background, London School of Economics to Columbia School of Business, where she actually was a professor for over a decade and started consulting to the hedge fund and financial services industry. And that led her to various jobs at Wasserstein Perella, McKinsey's Asset Management Group. She worked with George Soros. She worked with Steve Cohen at SAC Capital and ultimately ends up joining Goldman Sachs Asset Management Group as co-CIO. A fascinating approach to macro, very quantitatively driven and very academic research oriented. She wants to know exactly when this, that, and the other thing happens, what does it mean for this segment of the market? When do you own growth? When do you own equity? Why is certain anomalies persistent, and why do some seem to get arbitraged away fairly quickly? I found this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I think you will also, with no further ado, Goldman Sachs' Maria Vasalu. Tell us a little bit about the sort of work you did. How relevant was the academic research to what you're actually doing today? Well, actually, uh, it sounds very uh, unusual to go uh, from academia to the industry, and usually it's not considered a very successful uh, path. But in my case, it was very helpful because I had the opportunity to spend over 10 years doing intensive research in the uh, intersection of macro and finance and asset pricing. And all these questions that I was trying to answer had direct uh, applications to hedge fund strategies and portfolio management. And so actually part of the reason I moved to the industry was because while I was doing this research and presenting it around and publishing it in academic journals, it was attracting attention from the industry. And I had the opportunity to be a retained consultant from uh, for Citadel, for Deutsche Asset Management, and then eventually also for Soros Fund Management. Mm-hmm. And so along the way, I was getting uh, offers to join the industry, and finally I decided to join uh, Soros. So it wasn't like a big eureka moment. It just gradually became apparent that you were working in a space that was very valuable to people managing capital on a very 
let's call it aggressive basis, just a, hey, we're looking for alpha, we're looking to outperform, and what Maria does could be really useful to us. That was certainly part of it. There was also an intellectual like curiosity aspect to it um, because uh, when I was doing that work, it was also the time where behavioral finance became more uh, um, prevalent, if you like. And um, I was always on the camp of uh, rational uh, risk-based explanations for mm -hmm. various uh, surprising phenomena. And my view was always if uh, if some if an anomaly persists and it doesn't go away, um, maybe then it's it not an anomaly. maybe it's not an anomaly. Right. Maybe it's risk based, and it's a risk factor that we haven't really accounted for. And so a lot of my research was related to trying to uncover what were the underlying risk factors and the place where I was looking for these risk factors was in the real economy. So I was relating asset prices to GDP growth, to uh, investment uh, growth, to uh, um, default risk, to, to, to uh, uh, factors like this. Hmm. Um, and so I was providing explanations for surprising anomalies such as the small cap effect or the value effect. Um, Those were the first two that popped into my mind when you said, hey, is this truly anomalous or is there a risk factor? Some people have said small caps tend to be more volatile, more risky. That's where the additional performance comes from. Uh, when we look at value, a lot of people say, well, they're widely disliked. That's why they're cheap. So there's a behavioral side. How do you crunch the numbers on that, and, and where do you come out on small cap and value? Yeah, it was actually very interesting because when I looked at the um, small caps, um, it's actually, if you dissect the small caps, you see that uh, the small cap effect always exists in the smallest of the small caps, and it's related to default risk. Wait a second. So there's a small cap effect, and then within small caps, there's a micro cap effect, an even smaller cap effect? Uh, yes, and and what happens is um, this small cap effect is related to the default probability. Mm -hmm. So I have a paper where I computed default probabilities based on Merton's model, and I did this for the whole cross-section of assets, and then I sorted them and created uh, deciles and so on, and uh -huh. tracked how the behavior is over time. And of course, you see that um, depending on the on the uh, part of the business cycle you're going through, the default probability varies over time and it mm -hmm. increases during uh, uh, downturns of the business cycle and so on. And when, when that happens, then the small cap effect <clears throat> becomes much more prominent. And so you see it in the whole cross-section of small caps. But when the default probabilities are lower um, and you look at the whole cross-section of small caps, it's not so apparent. So uh, people say that it goes away, but it doesn't really go away. It's just it's, it's a matter of magnitude and where you're looking for it. Huh, that, that's really interesting. What about in the value space? Do you see the same issue of what used to be called, Benjamin Grab called stubs or uh, cigar stubs? Is that the same default risk when stocks become very, very cheap? 
Uh, or is there something else at play there? Um, in the case of value versus growth, um, uh, it was it's more related to the level of GDP growth and investment uh, growth in uh, different uh, sectors of the economy. So it's not so much a default um, aspect, but it's more uh, has to do with the variation of uh, of. Um, uh, real GDP growth. So when GDP is growing rapidly, I, I would assume you would want growth stocks. And when things are going sideways, there's a greater margin of safety with value and that's exactly. the way to go. And that's why you saw last year, for instance, when uh, GDP growth started uh, becoming a little bit more muted and expectations were for a lower GDP growth going forward, value stocks outperformed growth. But by a huge margin, right? Big, by big huge. disparity. Yeah. So at that time, um, I would go to conferences and publish papers and uh, make those arguments. And then I had other colleagues that I would try to provide um, um, behavior explanations. And similarly with the uh, momentum effect, um, which uh, I had uh, related to corporate innovation, as I was calling it, which was corporate uh, innovation, which uh, was really a firm level total factor productivity. So how much uh, innovation companies produce and how long they can uh, remain leaders in that innovation to really uh, maintain that momentum. Huh. So a company becomes very innovative, you get a little bit of a flywheel effect. Yes. And that innovation DNA starts to spill over into everything they do is it just that simple right and then but then it's it's a matter of being able to maintain this mm-hmm. um, and can can companies maintain this? indefinitely or is there a sell by not usually right. not um, and so you they go into cycles and and it also relates to uh, when uh, they are uh, losers um, uh, you know what's the probability of recovering uh, and it really has to do with whether they have the ability to innovate and get out of that uh, trough so so you can see a very high correlation between losers and winners with respect to how they perform on that uh, measure. Um, but anyway, so we I had all these ideas of about how uh, all these different phenomena uh, were formed and what was driving them. And of course, my colleagues on the behavioral side had different ideas. And so we were uh, always debating these topics at conferences and uh, through publications. And at some, t- uh, some point, it became to me a little bit repetitive. And I felt like nobody could uh, inequivocally prove their point as to who is really right. And so at some point I thought, well, if I can go and manage money based on uh, this risk-based explanations and uh, based on the way I understand uh, how the world uh, functions, how the markets functions, if that works, um, then that's one form of justification of of what I'm doing. Really, really intriguing. It's um it's sort of is uh, like the John Sachs um, poem uh, about the blind men describing the elephant. They don't have to be one doesn't have to be right or wrong. They could both be right. You're just approaching it from a different angle. Is, is that fair? Or is clearly one is right and one is wrong, and that's that. 
I think it's much more nuanced. And as uh, the time goes by, I think the two lines get blurred also because of technology, because of the increased presence of retail investors in the markets. The market microstructure has changed. And so um, it's much more common now to see um, prolonged deviations from uh, fundamentals Hmm. um, in the in the market. And we've seen that recently as well. And so um, I wouldn't say that uh, one approach is right and the other one is wrong, but maybe it's a matter of timing. I think the risk-based explanations need longer time to play out. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these uh, behavioral uh, drivers are more short-term drivers. So you were consulting to the industry while you're in academia. That had to make that transition when you finally decided to jump in with both feet. I'm assuming you were prepared for what you were jumping into. It wasn't a big shock. Or am I wrong? Once you left the quiet confines of academia, Wall Street is still a shock to the system. Well, it was certainly uh, not exactly a shock, but uh, I had to get adapted to, to it. But I am someone who is quite adaptable. Uh-huh. Uh, I left my country. I lived in six different countries. I, I came to the U.S. Um, uh, and uh, and so, you know, I'm used to uh, changing environments and try to adapt to these new environments. Uh, certainly, uh, going to Soros was a big uh, eye-opener. And uh, also, I was there during a very interesting time in the markets. What, what years were those? I joined in... Uh, the summer of 2006. Were you there for the financial crisis? Uh, pretty much. And uh, uh, I started, actually, uh, I developed uh, my strategies and built the uh, quantitative strategies group from the summer of 2006 uh, onwards. And um, I started uh, running my strategies with money in March of 07, so soon before uh, the quant meltdown, right. uh, which was interesting. And so um, I suddenly I had a bapti- baptism by fire uh, in the markets, but it was a great um, experience. We did very well during the quant meltdown, and it was also an opportunity to see up close what was happening behind the scenes in the markets, how the financial crisis was uh, developing. And also it was very interesting because even though George Soros had retired from active investing, when he saw what was happening in the markets, he came back. And so I I'm excited. Yeah, and so I had the opportunity to observe him up close, to listen to his views, to interact with him, and that was certainly a a great experience. I can imagine. So when you go through a substantial macro event, whether it was the quant crash or the financial crisis or even the pandemic, does that send you back to your models to tweak them? Do those giant events affect how markets behave subsequently and that leads you to have to make some changes 
Or, hey, the model's going to do what the model does, and it doesn't matter what happens out there. Well, Quan models always need to be evolved. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't Constantly. just build it. Yes, you can't just build it and uh, forget it. But it has to be done in a way that uh, keeps up with the developments in the market. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, um, when uh, the British referendum happened, well, we didn't have such an event before in the right. market. So that's not something where you want to make your model adapted to because we're not going to be having this events all the time. Mm -hmm. But that's an instance where you want to take your model and stress test it to see how it will behave depending on different scenarios that may transpire as a result of this uh, event. So that's what we would do. And then we will decide whether to take down risk or leave the risk on and, and so on. Um, if you have other phenomenon like, uh, you know, changes in correlations between assets or changes in the level of volatilities, these are things that uh, you want the model to adapt to going forward um, and incorporate this information into the model. So in that case, you want to evolve it. Or there may be uh, factors that were not present before, um, and you want to inform the model with it. Um, for instance, how the monetary policy uh, changes over mm -hmm. time, the fact that we had QE for a long period of time. All these things are things you want to include in the model. But you have to be selective and uh, really treat each case uh, separately. So you're working with George Soros, known as a big macro trader. He makes big bets about these large events. You end up going to Steve Cohen and Sack Capital. He's much more of a granular trader. He is not necessarily looking at the big events. He's looking at uh, things on a really where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. What was that transition like to go from a very top-down approach to somebody who's, you know, right there in the weeds with, with the rest of the trading desk. Yes, um, another great lesson. And um, uh, I was still a global macro portfolio manager with my own silo at um, SAC Capital. But as you said, at Soros, it was all about big macro bets. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, at the SAC Capital, it was all about risk management. Huh. So even though when I came from academia to Soros, I would look at how they were running the portfolios, and I was constantly scared because I felt they were taking way too much risk compared to what I thought from an academic perspective they should be doing, of course, I was novice at that time in the profession. Um, then I went to uh, SAC and I realized that uh, actually um, being careful with risk management is very much respected and even more than what I thought uh, should have been uh, happening at, uh, at Soros. And so I spent the subsequent years uh, trying to re uh, refine my models, um, make them uh, much more uh, uh, smooth in terms of their um, uh, return stream, uh, focus much more on risk management, downside uh, risk uh, hedging, and I think the models became better as a result. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. 
finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So let's talk a little bit about how you ended up uh, at Goldman. You were at Columbia School of Business where you were teaching. You were at Soros and, and SAC Capital. What attracted you to Goldman? Well, it's actually um, the, the, the whole asset management business uh, in, uh, is changing. So we went from a period uh, where hedge funds was uh, really the, the hot area to be. And of course, there are all these uh, big hedge funds that were developed over time. Um, uh, but uh, over time, as uh, you know, uh, there was this big shift towards uh, um, passive in investing, mm -hmm. and so that was a big challenge for for hedge funds. Um, at the same time, we had all this uh, decrease in volatility and financial repression because of the QE and all the extra uh, liquidity that was in the markets that uh, made um, uh, trading in uh, in hedge funds much more difficult, if you like, in terms of providing superior returns. I'm glad you brought that up because if you look at hedge fund performance before the financial crisis, there's a lot of alpha generators. The hedge fund industry generally is outperforming their benchmarks. I mean, not just the top decile. As a group, they seem to have done very well. And then post-financial crisis, it became very hard to generate alpha, and there was a huge gap between the big winners and the losers. Are you attributing that to zero interest rate and quantitative easing, or 
did things just change so much people didn't adapt quickly enough? Well, there were two things. Uh, I mean, my strategies were always in the space of uh, relative value across asset classes. So there, there was all, all re- right. um, yes, there was always some volatility to pick up. And so the strategies kept working. But by and large, in the overall industry, if you look at long short equity, um, there was very little, um, you know, within asset class volatility to pick up. Um, and also you have a period that because of this uh, extreme liquidity and uh, uh, quantitative easing, um, equities were performing extremely well. Mm-hmm. And so being passive and just holding uh, um, the index, uh, you were doing great. Right. So what was the point of uh, getting into hedge funds, uh, having uh, zero beta exposure or going into other strategies? And so um, you saw that uh, the hedge fund industry started changing over time. A lot of traditional macro funds actually started becoming more equity equity-oriented funds or including a lot of equity exposure uh, just to try to pick up uh, beta uh, in their strategies. And also there was an increased consolidation of the industry towards the bigger uh, managers. But to me, um, at the same time, I was finding this this uh, concentration on uh, passive investing also problematic because passive investing works when the markets are efficient. And mm-hmm. the markets are efficient when there is enough trading happening for new information to be incorporated in the prices. If everybody is a passive investor, then you don't have this mechanism in place to incorporate information in prices right away um, to do really benefit from them so so how much active management does there have to be for price discovery to really take place and I've asked people like Andrew Lowe at MIT who said you can have 90% passive the remaining 10% is where all your price discovery will take place does that sound like it's a lot, or do you agree with that perspective? That's uh, um, Andrew's uh, answer, I think, uh, derives from the idea of the marginal investor, as right. we say in academia. So uh, all you need is the marginal investor. Who's to... rational and always ready to take advantage of opportunities. Yes, but it's not very clear who the marginal investor is in practice. Or if practice, they even exist. If they exist. <laughs> and uh, what I have noticed through the 50 years that I've been managing my own uh, strategies is that the markets have become a little bit less efficient uh, over time in the sense that they have become, you see longer deviations from fundamentals. Eventually they do correct, but you see longer deviations from fundamentals. Sometimes you see more intraday volatility um, in certain events, especially around announcements and and so Mm -hmm. on. Uh, And so um, maybe this is attributable to uh, an increased exposure to passive management. Maybe it's attributable to more noise traders, what we used to call Mm -hmm. noise traders, which are effectively retail investors. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, let me let's stay with this a second, because I'm intrigued by the concept of the market becoming less efficient, when I look at the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, it seems as if we've gotten 
more and more heavily focused on technology and program training and now um, algorithmic and high frequency trading. And I would assume that that would make the market more efficient and harder to spot um, arbitrage opportunities and these uh, 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 various anomalies. You're suggesting passive is creating less efficiency. Does that mean there's more opportunity for active traders? I think there is more intraday trading now than it used to be. So you have the passive trade, the passive investors, and then you have a lot of intraday trading, and that's based on algos that uh, are looking for short-term trends to uh, capitalize. Some of them are AI-based, so they may be looking for particular words, and then they will extrapolate from that. Um, for instance, it was interesting to notice in the last. Uh, uh, Fed meeting, um, uh, Chair Powell used the word disinflation a few times. And disinflation. Yes. Not deflation, just slower rate of inflation. Yeah, so that means that the inflation is coming down um, and the markets will start rallying as soon as uh, he would pronounce that. Not because he was suggesting that inflation by and large is coming down, but he did say that in certain uh, segments of uh, the CPI, we were observing disinflation, such as in the goods markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could have been a, a, a case of... Uh, you know, uh, um, AI-based algorithms that were utilizing words to uh, um, to really uh, take advantage of uh, developments in the markets. And the following day, the market will reverse the rally mm-hmm. once people will digest what uh, he actually said. So perhaps some of these algorithms are making markets less efficient then because they're keying on a word, but not necessarily the full meaning of the speech. Is is that what we're thinking? Uh, they certainly uh, create more uh, intraday volatility. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say whether they maybe may in some cases they make them more efficient, maybe in some cases less efficient. But I think what is uh, likely the case is that they create more intraday volatility. So let's bring this back to how does this attract you to Goldman Sachs? You know, back in the 80s and 90s, it seemed like uh, these young hotshots would start at Goldman. They'd put together a trading record. Goldman would basically seed them, become their prime broker, and send them out to be hedge funds. Now it almost sounds as if the opposite is happening. Hey, at a big firm with Goldman, we have so many different tools that you can use that you don't get at a small hedge fund. You're better off working at the big firm. Did that play into your thought process? Tell us a little bit about that. I think the future of the industry is really in the solutions space. Solutions space. Yes, that's really what institutional investors uh, need. And what Let, they Let's need define it- that a little bit. It, in other words, they're not just looking for alpha. We have a problem and we're looking for a solution to that issue. We're, yes, we're looking for particular solutions, whether that's a liability, whether it's a, a completion of existing portfolio, whether there's a particular return uh, target they have, whether there is a particular liquidity profile um, that they need to achieve. Um, there are um, all kinds of needs that institutional investors have uh, that they cannot satisfy by just investing in the hedge fund industry.
industry because uh, the assets they manage are many times larger than what the hedge fund industry can absorb. At the same time, just being passive is not really um, the way to go. And so what I think is happening is the two areas are merging somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. where you're uh, really what the demand is is for uh, creating holistic portfolios that incorporate asset classes from the whole spectrum of assets out there, whether it's in public markets or private markets, um, focus on portfolio construction uh, with good uh, risk management uh, um, framework and try to uh, provide the right uh, profile of uh, risk-adjusted returns for the particular needs of the investor, incorporating alpha in there, but not just focusing on the alpha component. And I think this is um, interesting in many respects. You're really fulfilling a big need of uh, this institutional investors. You're bringing together um, skills from the whole spectrum of the industry. And um, you you get to uh, create the bespoke customized uh, solutions. So from for someone like me, uh, who started my career in academia and uh, uh, spent my uh, uh, research years thinking about uh, portfolio construction, uh, asset allocation, macro um, asset pricing, and then I went into the hedge fund industry. This is an area that really uh, uh, straddles the whole spectrum of things that I have done, and I think it's really where the future is. So when you talk about clients, I'm assuming the bulk of your clients are institutional, foundations, endowments, family offices, things along those lines. And, and sovereigns as well, sovereigns, central okay. banks. Oh, really? So that runs the gamut of the largest of the large sort of clients. I'm going to assume that each of those clients have a very different profile and are looking for very different sorts of solutions. That's true. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So we were talking about when you joined Goldman. You picked uh, quite a time to come into Goldman, just about the top of the market. Tell us a little bit about what that transition was like when you started at Goldman. It's certainly a time when uh, we need to rethink the way we approach uh, investing. Um, that's because now we are dealing with much higher volatility than we did in the past. Um, we have, uh, uh, instead of uh, ample liquidity in the markets and uh, um, accommodative monetary policy, we have a reversal of um uh, the monetary policy and uh, actually uh, uh, withdrawal of accommodation. At the same time, we are uh, going through uh, tectonic changes in the world uh, economic order. We, uh, we're going through a deglobalization process um, where uh, we see that um, actually onshoring becoming uh, more and more a topic uh, of discussion. Um, there is fragmentation in uh, the goods markets. There is uh, this um, a destabilization that we are observing in uh, the geopolitical front that uh, can um, significantly uh, change uh, also trade patterns, but it also affects uh, alliances uh, at the political level. Um, we have changing demographics. We have the decarbonization process that it's also affecting um, uh, investment um, production processes um, across uh, the board. And um, at, we, we also have the digitization process that has been going on uh, for a long time, and it got accelerated with the pandemic. So there is a whole host of factors that affect the background of the environment in which we operate and how growth and inflation is going to evolve over time. Uh, and at the same time, we have also a number of short-term uh, drivers to the markets that so we let, need to take into account. Before we get to the short term, let's stick with these big long-term macro deglobalization and geopolitical unrest and a new rate regime and on and on. How do you work these big factors into your process? Do you create a model where each of these factors have a specific weight? When you're looking at the world from a top-down perspective, how does that find its way to be expressed in an investment posture? We have a dual approach. So we certainly have our research process that it's based on models that we have created and we keep evolving. But we also have a qualitative approach in mm -hmm. investing. Um, and that uh, comes uh, through the um, experience of our analysts and researchers on particular asset classes, but also in terms of our ability to think through the macro environment and the implications that uh, the 
may have on the, on the investment environment and the various asset classes. So one of the things that I do is to really try to think through all these developments that are um, uh, happening and uh, um, the effects they may have on the markets and uh, on our investments. And then you mentioned there are shorter term inputs that drive volatility and obviously affect price. How do you incorporate that into your process? Those are easier to incorporate into the process because they're things that uh, um, you can observe at higher frequencies and you can incorporate into the models um, through quantitative approaches. The hardest part is to uh, uh, incorporate the bigger picture, and that's really where the uh, qualitative overlay uh, comes into play. Huh. Very, very uh, intriguing. So you're looking at the world's late 2021. Markets are just about at their all-time high. And yet it's pretty clear inflation has ticked up. The Fed hasn't begun raising rates, but they're talking about it. At what point do you start to say the 2022 and forward era is going to look very different than the decade from 2021 back. Uh, where do you say, all right, this is the line in the sands and we have to very much adapt to what's coming? Well, I joined uh, Goldman in July of uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. and um, Which was a pretty good year in the equity markets. Yes. Um, but by the fall of 2021, and uh, particularly in November, I was convinced that we needed to start cutting risk in our portfolios because mm -hmm. um, we had a period of the pandemic where um, we saw a reversal of monetary policy back to zero rates and increased QE at the same time as we had massive fiscal accommodation. Mm -hmm. And that had to be inflationary. Um, and so I was very concerned about uh, this effects and uh, how uh, inflation will play out and how uh, growth will react. Uh, Only a handful forward. of people were saying that in mid to late 2021. Uh, Jeremy Siegel at Wharton was warning about it, mostly on the fiscal side. but And, and some of the people who've been complaining about inflation for a decade uh, warned about it, but they, I think they were generally ignored. When you bring up this regime change uh, to your investment committee that, that you're co-CIO of, what sort of pushback do you get? Ah, we've had no inflation for decades. Or, or are people very much looking at the data and saying, well, rates haven't gone up yet, but they have to. How is that internal discussion? Like, what are the key points that everybody focuses on when the market is still going higher week after week? Well, we had a, a rigorous discussion on the topic. Uh, not everybody was on the same uh, page, but we have a collaborative approach. So mm -hmm. it was also part of my task to try to convince people that uh, um, you know in, we we had to uh, moderate risk, and so eventually we did uh, do that. Um, but uh, it's always good to have a plurality of views and debate them because that's how we all become better at what we do and and your title is multi-asset solutions what sort of assets are we looking at or is it 
completely unconstrained and you could look at anything or are there certain things you're really focused on? We can invest across all asset classes, both in private and public markets. Mm-hmm. It depends very much on the uh, mandates that, uh, that that we have. And, for, uh, for each and individual the, investor? For the individual investor, we have different channels that uh, we cluster the mandates, but effectively we can provide any solution that uh, an investor may need. Huh, really, and really, we can uh, tap on all the uh, capabilities of uh, Goldman Sachs um, across the firm, um, and really service our investors uh, using the One uh, GS approach. So let's talk about that One GS approach. I kind of found I'm a fan of the Goldman soft landing basket. I I just love the name of that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. It's been doing really well. Uh, because it looks like the economy is holding up better than a lot of people expected last year. Tell us a little bit about the soft landing basket. Yeah, at uh, multi-asset solutions, we are not in the camp of uh, soft landing. That's where we disagree with our you're, friends. You're in the recession uh, camp, right? Yes, we are in the recession camp. Uh, that's where we disagree with our colleagues at the GIR. But uh, that's a healthy uh, disagreement. Um, we think that uh, given uh, where inflation is and where the forces of inflation are, and given how stubborn inflation seems to be on the uh, services uh, sector, ex uh-huh. housing, it's going to be almost impossible uh, for this to uh, uh, to be reduced without loosening up the labor market significantly. And if you uh, loosen up the uh, labor market significantly, you're likely to see um, uh, negative uh, GDP growth uh, at some point. We don't expect it to be a deep recession because we are starting from uh, good initial conditions. So balance sheets are not overexpanded, uh, consumers are not over leveraged, uh, and so on. But we do think that we're likely to see a recession eventually. So let's take that apart a little bit. So the soft landing basket, those folks are saying, look, consumer spending is robust. Unemployment is at you know near record lows. The economy looks pretty good. But I suspect your perspective is something along the lines of, but inflation is sticky. The Fed keeps telling you they're not done raising rates. And at five and a half or six percent, that's going to cause uh, an increase in unemployment and and a short, shallow recession. Is that what you're looking for in 23 or 24? I don't know if it's going to be short. I hope it's going to be shallow for the reasons we discussed, that we are not getting into this environment with uh, high leverage and high, uh, you know... uh, um, Low unemployment and household wealth seems to be doing pretty well. Back half of 23 or, or 24? It could be the second half of 23. It could be it, we could still have a scenario where the uh, GDP the, uh, for 23 is not negative, but we have started entering a recession. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't expect the Fed to cut rates this year. Um, we think that right now the market is pricing a terminal rate of around point five point three percent. Right, which is um, above where we are today. 
yes. Uh, we may actually go higher than that. Um, I had said a few weeks ago that uh, we may go up to 5.5% before we are done with, uh, um, with the rate hikes. And uh, again, I think what the Fed will do is uh, it will continue uh, hiking and then pause and depending on how inflation uh, evolves, they may have to do more. I think that inflation will come down to around 3 to 4%, and then it's going to get very sticky. Right. And 2% is, is done? We're done with that, right? I think it's really hard for them to get back to 2%, and I'm not sure that 2% is the right target level anymore mm -hmm. because of all the other factors we discussed, the deglobalization, all this uh, segmentation and in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the markets that we are observing, the uh, geopolitical uh, developments, decarbonization, etc., I think all these uh, uh, developments are inflationary. So given the past decade of zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing versus the current policy, for you as a top-down macro strategist, which is the more challenging period? Because I recall a lot of uh, macro strategists couldn't wrap their head around how positive ZERP and QE were for equity markets, and they seem to be fighting the tape quite a bit. Which is the easier environment to, to navigate through? I don't know if it is a matter of easy versus hard environment. I would say that the the investment approach has to be different. So which one do you find you could go to the playbook and I have a solution for this as opposed to we've never seen this before and let's see if we can figure out what we can do? One of the things we've been doing um, at Goldman Sachs is, and in my team is really to rethink our playbook. Huh. So uh, what we are seeing now also means uh, lower correlations across different markets. So there may be more opportunities for relative value trades or more opportunities for diversification. You need lower leverage than you used to uh, need before. You have to lean on uh, diversifying strategies and uncorrelated strategies. We think this is a great environment for alpha. It's a great environment for active management. Mm -hmm. But you cannot run the, the size of assets that we are running with just active management. And so... Uh, so you marry beta and, and alpha together? Yes, and uh, the the, the uh, importance of risk management and downside uh, risk control becomes even more important in this uh, environment. You have to be very uh, conscious of uh, the potential for external shocks and constantly evaluate what the probability of these shocks uh, to materialize is and how they will affect your portfolio. So the, it's a little bit of a different environment environment than the previous one where we were in a low volatility environment, um, correlations were pretty stable, um, and uh, really the way to play that market was, uh, was very different. Really quite fascinating. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. 
Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about how to apply your discipline within the current environment. And I want to start by giving you a quote from you, which is, we expect the U.S. economy to enter recession in 2023 as the Federal Reserve pushes borrowing costs to 5% or higher. So clearly, a lot of Wall Street thinks we're going to duck now a recession that will end up with a soft landing. You are firmly in the recession camp, in the hard landing camp. Yes. Uh, and we talked earlier, you said we can see a terminal rate of about 5.5%. Uh, now, is that historically a very high number? You go back to the, forget the 70s, even the 80s and 90s, mortgages were 7%. 5.5% doesn't sound that bad. No, it doesn't. And actually, um, you know, a lot of people were talking about being in a restrictive territory uh, already um, in terms of the monetary policy. Most likely we're not at the restrictive territory yet because uh, see how uh, strong the labor market is. Labor market strong. Consumer spending is strong. The one area we really seem to, the rubber meets the road in terms of rates having a negative impact is housing. Housing really is doing as poorly as it's done in, in a long time. How does that translate into future economic contractions? Well, housing is um, having some uh, cooling uh, effects uh, um, manifesting uh, recently, but uh, at the same time, we haven't really seen the uh, housing rollover in the way that it did uh, during the financial crisis. And that's because most U.S. Uh, households have uh, 30-year mortgages. They had the opportunity to refinance uh, um, while the rates were at zero. And so they don't necessarily need to tap the uh, mortgage markets right now. Right, and it's... others are really waiting to for prices to come down before buying. So I think the number is 75% of households 
with a mortgage or paying 4% or less, is that keeping people locked in place? Is that part of the uh, inventory shortfall? As long as they have jobs that um, pay decently, I mm-hmm. think um, you know they don't really need to sell and they don't need to relocate. So, but for real estate, the rest of the economy seems to be doing pretty well. This year, the market started out really hot. What were we up ten percent in January? What do you make of that? Is that just a reaction to how oversold we got in twenty twenty two, or how do you contextualize? You know, that's a ten percent is a good year. Forget a good month. Yes, one of the things I had said uh, um, in another interview was that we had our year in January, and now we should focus in, on alpha. Um, but um, yeah, the January performance was largely uh, driven by thin trading, positioning, um, short covering, and also a number of um, very strong economic uh, news. But I think, in a way, the market is misinterpreting um, the Fed uh, here because uh, strong economic numbers, strong labor market uh, data um, do not imply to me that uh, we're going to have a soft landing. What it implies is that the Fed will have to go higher and therefore um, we're going to see, um, you know, a, a higher probability of recession going forward because so, the, the 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 segment of the CPI where inflation is concentrated is in ser- core services, ex housing, mm-hmm. and that's directly related to disposable income um, and to the labor market. So, so what do you make of the the market not taking Jerome Powell? At his word, he they've been pretty clear, hey, we're going higher and we're going to keep it higher for longer. And anybody who thinks we're done raising rates isn't listening to what we're saying. And the market says, yeah, yeah, you'll cut later this year. How are we supposed to interpret the the both the equity and the bond market really not listening to what Fed Chair Jerome Powell is saying? The equity markets have been a condition to always buy the dip and um, to really uh, um, not fight the Fed in the sense of uh, not fighting the Fed when the Fed kept uh, doing QE and accommodating, um, increasing the uh, monetary accommodation. But now they're doing the opposite. So right now, not fighting the Fed means actually selling doesn't mean buying um, because the Fed wants to uh, tighten financial conditions. The Fed wants to loosen up uh, the labor market. So in fact, what the market is doing is fighting the Fed. The bond market is doing better than the equity Mm -hmm. market. So I think what the two markets are pricing is not exactly the same uh, thing. So the odds of a rate cut in 2023, they've gone down a lot. Uh, since that big uh, move up in January, I'm going to assume you are definitely not in the the Fed will be cutting in 2023 camp. You think they're going to continue tightening and perhaps tighten too far? I don't see any uh, reason for the Fed to cut this mm-hmm. year. 
Um, we are not uh, seeing any uh, loosening up of the labor markets, which means that the monetary policy hasn't really become restrictive enough to have an effect on the real economy uh, in a profound way yet. Uh, inflation continues to be elevated, um, still very far away from, uh, from their target. Uh, the only case in my mind in which the Fed may cut rates is if we have some significant external shock mm -hmm. that necessitates them to uh, intervene in the markets, something like what happened in the UK with the LDI crisis or, mm -hmm. God forbid, some geopolitical event uh, of great significance. In other cases, I don't expect them to cut. Huh. So I look at rates alone as a very blunt tool, especially when we're looking at the labor market, where we have a shortage of workers now across all sorts of skill levels. Housing, there's a giant inventory shortfall. By some estimates, we're two to three million single-family homes short. Even things like inflation in cars and used cars, uh, you know, semiconductors are still way beyond the sort of yields that we're used to. How much can the Fed really fix the things that are broken and are causing prices and wages to be as elevated as they are? Are, are these things really that susceptible to ongoing rate increases short of a full recession? Well, the Fed can help with certain things. They can't fix everything. And uh, I think the uh, factors that you uh, pointed out suggest that uh, it may be very difficult for them to go back to 2% under all these conditions. They can certainly go down to 3 4% of inflation. Mm -hmm. The question is whether they will be satisfied with that and they will declare at that point that uh, because of all this changing uh, geopolitical and economic conditions, the 2% is no longer relevant and they will move their target, or whether they will insist on uh, continuing to reach 2% and in the process over tighten and really uh, damage the economy. Mm -hmm. There is a uh, question of uh, credibility of the Fed, um, and so th they will have to be very careful with how they message that in order not to damage the credibility of the Fed uh, in the long run. In terms of the wages, it's interesting to see is also the uh, evolution of the share of uh, labor as a percentage of real GDP over time. And what you see is that the share of labor was much higher in the 90s. And as globalization started expanding, the share of labor went down. And obviously, the share that would go to capital increased. Mm -hmm. um, but since the pandemic, this process has uh, reversed. And the share of labor is increasing again, which means that it compresses the share of uh, of uh, real GDP that goes to capital. Now, that makes it less uh, attractive for capital to invest and obviously uh, uh, less profitable for them. And part of what the uh, changing Fed policy is doing is redressing the balance of uh, the shares between labor and capital in real GDP. So what we're likely to see is a decreased again of the share of real GDP that goes to labor, huh. which 
um, in the short run will be negative for um, risk assets, but in the medium to long run, it will actually increase the profitability of companies and also the incentive to invest. So let's fast forward a year out. First or second quarter, 2024, CPI has come down to, let's call it 3.5%, and the Fed is at 5.25%, and they are no longer raising rates. What does that mean for the equity and bond markets a year out? Can you think in those terms? Like, do you have a sense of where the Fed wants to navigate to? And what does that mean for the outlook, barring exogenous events and all sorts of unanticipated surprises? I think that as inflation is coming uh, down and uh, um, stabilizes around the levels that you mentioned, around three, uh, three and a half percent, um, the Fed will become much more attuned to its dual mandate mm-hmm. and start uh, focusing on uh, how the labor market is evolving. And I think that's obviously one of the factors that they're uh, very focused on already. But at the moment, because the labor market is so tight, they're single-handedly focused on the inflation uh, side of their mandate. Once inflation starts coming down and to the extent that unemployment starts rising, they will start uh, uh, balancing out the two sides of their mandate. And that's really where the policy uh, will be determined. Hmm. If unemployment starts rising rapidly, then they will give up part of their inflation fighting in order to stabilize the labor markets. If labor markets uh, react more uh, positively and uh, we don't see a massive increase in in unemployment, um, they're more likely to persist uh, with their inflation fighting mandate. And then last inflation question, China has ended their zero COVID policy, they're reopening. How potentially impactful is China on global GDP and to some degree global inflation? Certainly, um, the reopening of China has a positive effect on global GDP. It will also potentially have a positive effect on inflation in the sense that the demand for commodities will increase as a result of uh, uh, China's uh, reopening. The question is whether that will translate into more inflationary pressures that will see a backup in inflation in the goods markets or whether... Um, demand will have moderated enough um, in other places to keep um, prices contained there. Lastly, as a multi-asset manager, what are you looking at in this current environment that you think today is suddenly much more appealing and exciting than it might have been last decade? What asset classes suddenly have become, or not so suddenly, have become much more interesting given the world we're in? Well, certainly uh, fixed income is more interesting now than it was in the past because uh, uh, real yields are positive. Mm-hmm. Um, we are getting closer to peak rates, and so locking in some of these uh, rates uh, um, makes sense. 
Um, credit will become an interesting um, area as uh, we're going through this process. We expect uh, default rates to uh, rise a bit, but not at levels that we saw in previous crises. But it's also interesting now um, because we need less leverage to achieve our uh, return uh, goals. And so, uh, in a way, cash is uh, king again, uh, whereas before it was not. Um, so the way we we look at portfolios, how we invest uh, is different. And I think um, it is a, a, an environment that favors active management. So stock picking will be uh, um, a really important component. But there will also be uh, a lot as we are uh, going through this deglobalization process and restructuring of supply chains, there will be opportunities across the board in different industries um, to capitalize on these changes in the economic structure of different countries. And some of these opportunities will manifest themselves in the public markets and some in the private markets. So the way we uh, look at portfolios is holistically across private and public markets and really focus on the opportunities that may exist. Huh, really interesting. So let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of our guests. Uh, tell us what you did to stay entertained during the lockdown and afterwards. What were you streaming? What was keeping you um, <laughs> occupied. Well, one of the things I uh, used to do was uh, go for long runs in uh, Central Park. So mm -hmm. that was uh, one of the things that was keeping me sane uh, during the lockdown. Um, and otherwise, I watched all the uh, usual shows that uh, everybody was watching at that time. Um, on Netflix and uh, Amazon and uh, the various other streaming uh, platforms. Tell us about some of your mentors who helped to shape your career. I had the opportunity to meet a number of uh, very interesting people through my uh, career. And I can't say that uh, I had mentors early on in my career, but I certainly was around a very uh, interesting and uh, impressive people that I was able to observe and learn from them. Um, in a way, because of my process, uh, uh, because of my path, starting uh, doing my PhD uh, at London Business School, then coming to the U.S. without having studied in the U.S., I was a little bit of an orphan when I mm -hmm. came here. And so I didn't have an obvious mentor um, through the process. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why I'm, I try to find my path on my own. But uh, over the years, I actually, uh, as I became more advanced in my career, I started meeting people who have been acting as uh, mentors. Uh, certainly at Perella Weinberg Partners, Joe Perella was someone who... Uh, um, spend a lot of time talking uh, with me uh, and um, I learned a lot from him both about the profession and uh, his experience and I'm fascinated by uh, the interest of my colleagues at uh, Goldman Sachs to uh, guide me through the firm, make my transition easier, mentor me and I find this extremely uh, 
uh, impressive. I'm very uh, grateful that uh, they are willing to spend the time to do that. Mm. So I must say, not so many mentors early on in my career, but actually more mentors later on. Very interesting. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now? In the old days, I was reading a lot of literature, uh, and so my favorite book uh, was uh, Proust, uh, Remembrance of uh, Times Past, which I read both in French and English, uh, and also various uh, uh, books by Dostoevsky, whom I like very much. Uh, but these days, uh, I read a lot about what's going on in the markets, the world, and I'm trying to think about those things. Uh, one of the last books I read uh, was unrelated to that. Uh, it was uh, uh, Art as Therapy, which I found very interesting. And uh, it's one of those topics where once you read the book, you think that it makes a lot of sense. And you should have known this all along, but obviously I didn't uh, before. And uh, now some of the books that I have on my side and starting uh, reading is uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century uh, by Yuval Harari, mm -hmm. and also Leadership by uh, Henry Kissinger, huh. because I think we are in a very uh, uh, important time uh, for um, uh, global uh, world order, and I think geopolitics will be really important, and the leadership that uh, world leaders will show uh, now and in the coming months and years could shape our world in a profound way. Huh, very interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in macro or multi-asset uh, investing? I think they need to uh, have both good technical skills, um, but also uh, understand macros. So I think this combination um, used to be rare. I think it becomes more and more important uh, to be able to uh, uh, combine STEM skills with uh, more of the economic uh, science and uh, uh, thinking uh, that will uh, help you understand the markets better. Hmm. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 25 or so years ago when you were first getting started? When I first got started, the world was different than it is now. I think what is important is to be cognizant of the fact that conditions change, the world changed, and we need to evolve with those conditions. So uh, uh, obviously, uh, I, I learned along the way. Um, but I think uh, what uh, I know now was not necessarily applying. Uh, 20 years ago and vice versa. So if there is a lesson for ever, for all of us to learn is that we need to keep evolving, we need to keep learning, and we need to keep adapting to our environment. Huh. Very interesting. Maria, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Maria Vasalu. She is co-CIO at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. If you enjoy this conversation, well, please check out any of the previous 470-something we've done over the past nine years. 
You can find those at YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Bloomberg, wherever you feed your podcast fix. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts at podcast on Twitter. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Sarah Livesey is my audio engineer. Sean Russo is my head of research. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.